0: Hi, this is Savio. I've been seeking answers to some of life's most perplexing questions my entire life. In 2014, I was diagnosed with stage three cancer. And ever since, I realized my calling existed outside of what I knew to be familiar. This podcast is home for survivors like myself and those who yearn to build resilience in their mindset and live their best life. In season three, the show includes a mix of coaching sessions followed by interviews with those from all walks of life who have been successful in the wellness, business, media, and travel industries. The intent is to show the human experience in its rawest form so that others may glean insight. Nothing is rehearsed. As a board-certified wellness coach, number one best-selling author, and syndicated columnist, my job is to ask the deep questions of those trying to make sense of their place in this fractured world. I believe life speaks to us in different ways. Many of us listen, but don't know how or where to begin. As someone who has crossed the bridge between life and death, I say simply, begin where you are now and get busy living. If you liked today's episode, I would appreciate it if you could share it. Be sure to tag me at The Human Resolve so I can reciprocate in kind. So without further ado, welcome to The Human Resolve Podcast. Today's podcast guest is Hans Ruffert, celebrity chef, author, and gastric cancer survivor. As Hans states, I've been told three times that I would be dead by morning, and they were very clear these were all the reasons, and we've done all that we can do. So I was being told no to life, and to that I was like, no, this is not the end of my life. I was not ready to be done with this. Hi Hans, good to see you. Good to be seen, my friend. So what would you like coaching on? today?
1: Well, uh, listen, I am one of those yes guys, like I, after surviving my crazy stomach cancer ordeal, I I sort of somehow got, I guess when they replaced my innards, somebody dropped some fear of missing out into my person, in that FOMO. And uh, what I have found is, is that I too often give too much of myself away. So if somebody asks me to speak at something or do a cooking demonstration or um, whatever it is, even speak to a, a loved one or even a, a, you know, a friend of the family who was just diagnosed, my answer is always yes. And then my my philosophy has been is my answer is yes, and I will reverse engineer, uh, you know, to make it happen. But what I'm finding more and more is that there's really little left for me. And I feel, I think because I grew up in the hospitality industry, and, I, and I'm not trying to turn you into my uh, uh, psychiatrist, uh, but, you know, my entire life has been to the service of others growing up in a restaurant. And so I feel incredibly guilty if I say, you know what, today is for me. I wanna, I wanna do things for myself. Um, so that's where I really need help is trying to figure out um, balance, I guess is probably the, the key word there between what's my time, what's time for my family, what's time for um, professional obligations, but also what's left for the people who genuinely need help.
0: So what I'm hearing is that after your cancer ordeal, you just found yourself becoming a yes man. Uh, you don't know if a little bit of FOMO is part of that, and you just want to sort of parse out time for yourself and time for family and time for other obligations that you, de- you, know, you deem valuable. Is that correct?
1: A hundred percent. I spent weeks in the hospital, you know, after I've had about 15 surgeries. And so during that time, pushing my you know two IVs and at times having as many as seven drainage tubes you know, coming out of my person. And when you're in that moment, you think, man, if I could just get out of this hospital, I wouldn't, I would, uh, you know, anytime anybody asked me to do anything, the answer is going to be yes. And I really stuck to that, but I think at some expense to myself.
0: Mm. So you stuck to that at the expense of yourself.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So what would be a really great outcome for today's conversation? Wow.
1: Um, you know, um, I I don't know if it's guilt, but I I don't know how to say no. And and in hospitality, you never say no. Even if somebody says, hey, I'd like to have a walrus burger, the answer is yes. Now, it might be a yes, but, like it's going to cost $10,000 and it might take me six weeks to procure, but the answer is yes. I genuinely don't know how to politely, effectively, efficiently, genuinely tell someone, I'm sorry, but I'm not going to be able to do that. So I would love for you to somehow empower me, give me your blessing to say no sometimes and, and the best way to manage that.
0: Okay. So you want some empowerment tools on best ways to say no. Absolutely. So when I say the word yes, what does that conjure up for you?
1: Wow, well, that's a, that's a good question. Um, Again, I, I I'm I always try to make other people happy, even though I will be the first person to tell my own children that uh, you can't make other people happy. Like happiness is not a person, place or thing. It's an internal decision. And, you know, a lot of those things I know from growing up, listening to self-help and people like Zig Ziglar. Um, so I would be the first to give the advice that you can't make other people happy. Yet I seem to be uh, in this uh, f- this feedback loop that I am somehow responsible for everybody else's happiness. Um, so, uh, so again, I, I, feel like a yes is almost for other people, not so much for me, if yes that makes is, sense.
0: Yes is for other people, not so much for you. Has uh-huh. there ever been a yes in your life for you? Well, um,
1: that's a, that's a really good question. I mean, I have had a lot of great opportunities that have, uh, that have come my way um and that i that i have said yes to i'm just trying to think I Man, i i did ask uh, someone to marry me and she said yes and that's still going on 25 years um so that's a good thing um there have been a couple times in my in my young professional life where i stuck my neck out and asked for a an opportunity that was maybe above my pay grade and and the answer was yes and i'm very proud of of those moments um, but I find that I'm usually not. I'm usually not even putting myself in the position to to be in a yes no situation. I seem to be more on the receiving end of that.
0: So you're more on the receiving end of of the yes no. Yeah. What about your um, sort of childhood? How did yes and no fall?
1: Well, um, so uh, my dad being almost the stereotypical A-type German. I mean, you could almost make a sitcom parody of, of uh, it had to be just so. Um, he was so anti-lazy. Uh, we lived above our family's restaurant. I mean, literally, we, you know, the restaurant was downstairs, we lived upstairs. And anytime that the restaurant got busy or over-asked, my sister and I would run downstairs to either wash dishes or shuck oysters or bust tables. Um, so we didn't really have a lot of uh, opportunity to say no. We we lived sort of uh, at the beck and call of the business. Even when we, uh, on a rare day off, we still were always representatives of uh, of the business. So in, in, during my sort of rebellious punk years, and I wanted to get my ear pierced, you know, I wasn't allowed to because I represented the family business. And even when I was at school or out shopping, I had to, you know, fall in line with this, um, you know, again this hospitality thing. Um, so I, I think again, my, uh, God, I feel like I need to be laying down for this session, <laughs> uh, but I, but I've always been at the service of uh, of other people, and that that does also bring me great joy. I, I love it when, um, when I'm able to craft an experience. Sometimes you have people that come in that are in a bad mood, or that you know they've had a bad day. And me as a hospitalitarian, I can turn that around and they leave with this amazing experience. Um, but I, you know, as I mentioned, I, I have a hard time asking that of other people for myself. Um, it's just like I just feel and it's not that I don't feel like I deserve it. I just don't ever put myself in that situation. Even if I'm at a party, the first place I will gravitate to is the kitchen to where I will help either prepare more food or clear away the dishes or whatever it is. I just find myself in that role.
0: So Hans, what does the word no mean to you?
1: Oh, I mean, it it sounds almost uh, like a a smart-ass answer to say it's it's very negative. I mean, no is the very definition of negative, but it has very negative connotations for me. Um, It is truly not in my vocabulary to tell someone no. Even if I'm effectively saying no i rarely ever use that word Um, i try to find a creative way to kind of skirt that word Um, it really does have powerfully negative uh, connotations to me Um, to hear the word no to say the word no um, i'm always trying to work around i'm always also in a group you know back in school when we were group projects and someone says "We, we can't do that like that's not an option it's almost telling me it's almost like challenging me. Like I almost puff up that I'm like, wait a second, maybe we can. And so I'm always trying to find a way around the the barrier or the barricade of no.
0: When I say the word no, does that hit you anywhere in your body?
1: Um, you know, it's funny. I uh, Listeners might not know, but you know, I don't have a stomach. I lost my stomach to stomach cancer. But where my stomach should be, it absolutely hits me in that cavity uh, in that sort of you know lower chest upper abdomen yeah it feels very physical uh, the word no would
0: you like to explore a little more with me
1: well lead me lead me through it what is what does that mean i don't I don't ne- never really thought about that
0: okay so just once you to get comfortable in your seat you and close your eyes if you feel inclined or soften your gaze whatever just want you to take a couple of breaths in and out We'll just do a quick body scan. I just want you to breathe into the different body parts I mentioned. So, top of the head, forehead, ears, the nose, the lips, the mouth, the neck, shoulders, arms. Upper body, your chest, the general region of your stomach, your pelvis, your legs, your toes. I just want to take a couple of breaths in and out. You know, the word no, you said it was hitting you in that area. What's happening there you
1: know what's what's interesting too is i noticed in that moment of of uh relaxing which again is not something i'm i'm too comfortable with um i noticed my heart rate go up when you said the word no i actually felt myself totally relaxing as we were kind of going head to toe there and then as soon as you said the word no again i felt my heart rate go up um in almost like a weird claustrophobic way, if that makes sense. I mean, like it, uh, like a tightening, a quickening, um, like I'm supposed to spring to action. You know, when uh, when I hear that word, um, I think you have uh, you have uncovered something I may have never really thought too deeply about there. So,
0: does it have any form or shape?
1: Wow. Yeah, you know, when you first say that, nothing. Nothing springs to mind. Um, I don't know why an onion just popped in my head. Maybe because of the the layers of that. Um, but um, that honestly, that's the first thing. That's the first image that popped in my mind uh, was like a was like a big fat yellow onion for some reason. Maybe but maybe being the chef, the food analogy is always going to be the strongest thing.
0: Big fat yellow onion. Yeah. Does that have any other context besides food for you? This idea of an onion.
1: Well, I mean, it, it, as as you say it, I mean, uh, you know, again, growing up in a restaurant, anytime onions were being chopped, I would cry. Not, not out of sadness for the onion, uh, but you know how it stings your eyes. I mean, it is uh, absolutely one of those uh, very visceral, uh, physical things. Our restaurant was famous for our French onion soup. And so we would go through probably a hundred pounds of onions a week. And so anytime i would see anybody chopping onions, I would quicken my, quicken my step and go through the kitchen a little faster. I, I still have a pretty low tolerance when it comes to, uh, tears and onions.
0: So let's, let's go on this little bit of a exploration. If the onion, that sort of feeling, that visual that you had, had a voice, do you think it would say anything to you right now in the moment?
1: Wow. You are asking questions that I really would have never, uh, I would have never thought before. Um, Gosh, I don't know. I, I, it's not uh, it's not speaking to me as such. Um, I yeah, I'd really, i don't i don't necessarily like associate a a voice or a, a you know other than that sting. I can't think of anything voice wise.
0: So Hans, I'm sort of curious if you told your dad when he asked you and your sister to come downstairs. No.
1: What would happen uh we we definitely grew up with in some fear of my dad he was the authoritarian um i don't know how old you are but i grew up in the generation of the atari 2600 where uh you couldn't save your game you could only pause your game and even then only for a limited amount of time so growing up upstairs i would be in the middle of you know pitfall or or uh, defenders or galaga and they would yell for help and i would i would you know pause the game and run downstairs um and you know i would have this sort of internal timer like i've got to make it back upstairs before my uh before my game times out or whatever it was but the thought of telling him no never even crossed my mind i mean he was definitely um uh of the old school that you know you got a whipping but either with a belt or he he, <laughs> he tended to use aquarium tubing uh if the belt wasn't uh, Wasn't handy, and and again, not that that happened often, but uh, we we learned how to avoid uh, that kind of a punishment. So I think it was just understood that we all, you know, were always on call. Um, So the idea of saying no to him, um, you know, even if I it was a Saturday or whatever day off, uh, and he would say, "Do you need a project?" and I would say, "No, I don't need a project. I'm playing video games." He's like, "You need a project," and so I would have to go out and deadhead the geraniums or. Uh, you know, weed eat or whatever, he would find a, a project for me. So uh, that's probably the only time I remember telling him no, was uh, trying to say, no, I'm fine. I don't need a, I don't need a chore. And he would find me a chore anyway.
0: You You mentioned that you're a parent. How have you, how has that experience affected or influenced your own parenting?
1: Well, you know, I think, um, when it comes to those kind of skills. My dad was an amazing teacher uh, and I definitely inherited that and, and continue on that tradition where I love to teach. But he also kind of taught me how not, he wasn't good in the way of uh, encouragement. Uh, and so I, I try to lead by opposite example when it comes to that, where I, I felt as a kid that I wanted to have more encouragement, more um, praise from time to time. Now I'm not a, uh, you know, certificate of, of um, participation kind of parent. Like, I don't want to pat him on the back for just showing up, but I do love to to be a cheerleader and rally uh, when it comes to, uh, you know, to to accomplishments. Be- because we were a family restaurant, my dad rarely was able to show up at uh, tennis matches or, or things like that because he was the chef. He had to work. Um, so I have tried to make myself more available to my kids to be there for them for those things. So, um you know you learn sometimes what to do from people and sometimes you learn what not to do um so i I try to be a little more involved i guess than than he was
0: in this situation if uh you were the child and you know what what would you uh what would you want your your father to tell you in this situation given the fact that you have a trouble saying no
1: oh gosh you know um. When I was diagnosed with cancer, and my, and my sister uh, also had breast cancer prior to me. She passed away the year before I was diagnosed. Um, we we saw a, a very marked change in my dad. He's no longer with us. He passed in 2010. Um, he became kind of more of that cheerleader uh, during her illness and during my illness, um, kind of making sure we kind of crossed the finish line or when we felt like quitting our chemo or radiation. He became... Uh, that cheerleader. And, you know, not that I regret necessarily, but that's the, I guess that's the version of my dad that I try to emulate. Um, And that's pretty much what I would want him to tell me now is that, um, you know, it's okay uh, to take some time for yourself. It's okay to, especially, you know, um, sometimes we prioritize things based on, you know, money, like if somebody's offering you, you know, money to do a gig, or if it's um, obviously somebody you know well, a friend, you pri- prioritize those things. I tend to say yes to anybody at any time. Um, and I know as a dad, I think I would tell my kids that it, you know, it's okay to maybe throw a few more um, qualifiers in there. Yes, but, and I'd be happy to help, but I have X amount of time or I can't do it until you know, X date in the future. So um, maybe rather than reverse engineering the yes, maybe I need to be a little more uh, proactive about the yes that <clears throat> yes but it might not be today or tomorrow.
0: So yes but. Yes but. And you mentioned um, sort of this example or this idea of taking time out for yourself. Like in a perfect world, what is taking time out for Hans mean?
1: Well um, I come from a proud line of nap takers. I, I feel the, mo- I mean, just to be able to have a 45 minute or an hour guilt-free, you know, turn off the lights and take a, a restorative nap, uh, is my ideal of a great day. Having somebody make food for me, because as a chef, you, uh, you find that people stop asking you out to eat, um, because they're afraid that what they would create is not up to your standards. But quite honestly, being a fan of food, um. I have to share real quick i was out taking a walk yesterday and a lady recognized me from my television stuff and she had just made a cast iron skillet full of cornbread and as i walked by she met me on the sidewalk with a steaming hot slice of homemade cornbread and that was the most rewarding i felt like i had won the lottery that somebody brought me a slice of homemade cornbread with no qualifications. She wasn't asking for my opinion. She wasn't asking me to judge it. She just was happy to share food with me. And i that was the most rewarding thing that's happened to me in recent memory. Simple, easy, honest food. Um, but anyway, so yes, I mean, having experiences like that where I am more, I mean, it sounds almost cliche, but to say more in the moment where I'm not thinking about, oh my God, in two hours, I have to you know, I've committed myself to do a, a presentation or a speech. Uh, even next week, I'm speaking at a at a big um, international uh, gastric cancer conference, and I'm super proud that I've been asked to do it. But all of the steps of me physically getting there, getting prepared for it, or whatever, takes a huge commitment of time. So as soon as I said yes, I felt this sort of double uh bu- double sensation of pride and also dread and that oh my god i've just committed myself once again to essentially what's a week-long commitment you know so another week from my 52 in the year has been uh, has been taken from me and and again i'm super proud and i'm excited to do it but it's um it's a, it's a big commitment
0: what are your big asks hans
1: in what context what do you mean
0: if you could sort of have sort of asks right now in your life, you mentioned sort of saying no is hard for you saying yes is easy for you. What would be a couple of asks just for yourself?
1: Wow. That's a, that's a good question. It's, and it seems like such a profound question because I never even, I never even allow myself time to think about those things. Um, a guilty pleasure that I have been allowing myself is uh, I've been playing pickleball here lately, and I've found that I'm quite good at that. Um, so I uh, I would love to be a little more involved in in that. You know, as a as a as a uh, I almost said as a guilty pleasure, but forget the guilty part. Just as a pure pleasure of of being able to play and be competitive and and have that time. Um, I, uh, I'd also love to write again. You know, I, um, I I had a blog for quite a long time, especially during the, the depths of my illness and had so many people following the blog that at some point it went from being this very cathartic um, therapeutic exercise and it turned into, I, I wasn't writing for myself anymore, I was writing for other people. And I found that somewhere about year two, I someone would ask me a question I would see them in the grocery store or out on a walk and they would ask me a question and as I was answering them they would say oh yeah I know I read that on your blog and then I realized that they aren't they're just asking me because they want to tell me that they read my blog and again at some point it switched from being a very personal experience to being a very public experience and I miss that I miss I miss being able to write for myself um, I I've, I've, haven't allowed myself to do that in some time but it's a it's an exercise that I really I miss.
0: And what, what did that writing for yourself give you?
1: Gosh, you know, um, I've, I've always enjoyed writing. I mean, it, it, it allowed uh, my, it allowed my, uh, it allowed my uh, almost sort of flex a muscle that, um, you know, it, it, I was always looking for, um, what's the expression? It's a means to an end. And I was always thinking this has to turn into something. In fact, my uh my cookbook a lot of it came from the blog so i um very quickly turned it from again this personal exercise and uh, started writing in the hospital mainly to remember there were so many things happening and hitting me from all sides i i wanted to capture and remember that experience and i also uh, I had a mentor during uh, during the early part of my cancer that was a, was a great resource for me. And so I wanted to share these experiences with other people th- with a recent diagnosis because it took some of the mystery of, um, and, and sort of fear of that experience away to be able to somehow capture it, put it down, quantify it, um, describe it. Um, and so that part of it was very personal, very um, internal. And then it all—this was right about the time of the rise of social media. It all became about you know, oh, so and so liked it, and then magazines were picking up on it, and they were sharing it, and somehow that it just switched, um, and I and I stopped. And and it's um, you know, as I'm saying it out loud, it never dawned on me that I could just write and not publish it, that I could just write it for myself and not put it on a uh, on a public blog or whatever. So. Uh, I, that might be a, a good exercise that I should, that I should go towards.
0: You know, we talked a lot about in the beginning about, you know, your yes and then, you know, the nose, when you were in the depths of your cancer, did nose come out for you?
1: Well, so listen, I, um, I have been told three times. I mean, I'm not exaggerating three times. They have told my wife and I that I would be dead by morning. And Um, that was a hard no. That was a very like, you know, your life is ending. And they were very, you know, very clear on these are all the reasons and we've done all that we can do. So I was sort of being told no to life. And then to that, I was saying, no, this is not the end of my life. You know what I mean? So if that makes sense, that's no in a positive way. I was I was not ready to be done with this and so i i said no to their diagnosis now obviously there's a physical and there's a mental part of that the my my body still had enough um you know fuel to to keep me going uh but i think the mental part of that is i just was not ready to lay down and and say i'm done um i full-heartedly disagreed with that so there's there's got to be something to be said about that german stubbornness um coming through there um, my answer to that diagnosis was no, which in a sense was a yes to life. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, there, um, and, and also the physical limitations of my body during that time, especially during chemo and radiation, I wasn't able to eat, uh, the way I used to, and I still have to, to be very, um, mindful of the way that I eat. I wasn't able to be as physically active. I wasn't able to be as playful as my children. And so. Um, there were a lot of barriers and blockades for sort of normal life. And I had to very quickly learn what my new normal was. Um, But I'm proud to say that, you know, I'm coming up on my uh, 17 year cancer, cancerversary. Um, I'm proud to say a lot of those barricades and barriers are now in my rearview mirror that I've, you know, I I still have things that I will always uh, struggle with. And I'm, you know, I'm not going to be a, a large man anymore. I don't have the, I don't have the physical, um, you know, the, the hardware anymore to, to be overweight. Um, but I, um, again, I've, I've, I've broken through a lot of those former nose uh, and I'm proud to say that I'm still here and still kicking it.
0: Mm. So how can you like, what's a step that you can use with that experience with, with, you know, what you're going through right now is sort of this idea of always wanting to say yes to things.
1: Yeah, I. Um, you know that's a that's a great question. You know, oftentimes when I find myself again, I say yes, and there are days where I physically don't feel like saying yes, and as as I mentioned, so what I'll end up doing is verbally say it, and then later sort of regret that. Oh man, I think I've overcommitted myself. Um, I think that knee jerk yes has to be tempered somehow. So I think I'm going to uh, I'm going to come up with some sort of very polite way to rather than giving that instantaneous yes, change it into something very uh, hospitalitarian and say, "You know what? Let me look and see what I can make happen." Let's, you know, that's I, I would love to do it, so let's let's circle back, let me look at my calendar and we'll see what we can make happen. So it's not saying no, it's not a full yes, but it's maybe, um, uh, it's an affirmative, but uh, with contingencies. Um, because again, I'm so bad at just saying yes to, to anything. Honestly, I think I would sell my own shoes off my feet to make someone else, I would give my shoes off my feet um, at a loss um, just to make somebody else happy. Um, but that's a very temporary feeling, you know what I mean? Like it's a, it's this instant gratification of the yes, and then I sort of pay for it later. I somehow have to um, to square up that that balance between the joy of the yes and then the expense of the um, of the reality of that yes. Um, I almost need like an, I need an accountant. I need, I need a, I need somebody to square away the the sum total of of these yeses versus the the experience.
0: Does the yes always have to be quick?
1: You know, that's a great question. And that's what I'm saying. You know, I, I need to learn to not – because quite honestly, most of the time when I'm asking the question, even if it's something as mundane as, you know, can I get those uh, that sweatshirt I ordered by the end of the week, most of the time the answer is not yes. Most of the time is, you know what, we'll, um, we're will we going to do our best. Or, you know, we there there's a um, – it's not a hard no, but even in – like I said, even just the mundane transactional day-to-day um, experiences – rarely is there just a straight out yes. Um, So I don't know why I feel like I have to, I have to just almost like the um, slot machine. I feel like that's gonna, you know, all three yeses are gonna hit and a pile of yes tokens are gonna come out of the machine. Um, Maybe because I I enjoy it when I get a a yes, but the reality is it doesn't happen as often, um, uh, definitely not as often as I say yes. That's a good point.
0: So how would you hold yourself accountable, Hans?
1: well um gosh you know it used to be that my my wife would be pretty good about um, you know trying to temper my enthusiasm but she has long since just realized that I'm typically just gonna say yes anyway and then we uh, we work our way around that um so yeah this is gonna be uh, maybe I, I I'm gonna come up with some sort of a mantra where um, just like with my my own example of the walrus burger from earlier, where it's a yes, but I'm going to think of some sort of a standard response that is um, not a no, not a hard yes, but um, I'm going to see what I can do to make that happen. Or that's a great idea. uh, Let me me, uh, spend some time and see how we can make that happen. So I'm going to try to soften the yes into something that is not a no, but is also a little, gives me a little bit of flexibility to massage that yes into a workable yes, rather than uh, me trying to back into
0: it. I mean, as you're saying those words, what's happening with that onion feeling? In your no,
1: mouth? I honestly, I yeah, I don't know if you just saw me. I was actually just sort yeah. of rubbed my chest. I mean, I I I feel a little looser in that. I'm not feeling as uh, it's it's the blooming onion. I mean, so it's opening up a little bit. Uh, I don't feel as uh, as tight in the chest about that. I, I like that idea. I'm smiling as we are talking. I like the idea of of uh, a creative way of of saying uh, a a softer yes, a softer, more affirmative, and and then making that more realistic. Because again, um, I, I always give somebody actually once said, you know, there's only about 65% of me left internally after all my surgeries. A friend of mine said, there might only be 65% of you, but you always give 110%. And I do, and I'm proud of that. But I think, again, there's, if you took that 110 minus 65, that balance there weighs heavy on me at times. Uh, and I find myself stressing, uh, to make that happen. So it's, uh, You know, and I think anytime you're given a a terminal diagnosis and I've heard this from other cancer patients and in your interviews, you might've heard the same. Life becomes a little bit about legacy, you know what I mean? Um, It it becomes a little bit about how you're going to be remembered. It's going to be the sort of sum total of everything that you've accomplished. Um, And I think that that weighs on me at times, even though on paper, if I were to die tomorrow and let's try not to make that happen. Um, but if I were to die tomorrow, I'm quite proud of all the things I've accomplished. There's really not not a ton on that list. I mean, you know, before the pandemic, I was asked to speak in, in uh, Romania and in Hungary and in the Netherlands and in, uh, in the UK and all of those things. I mean, any of those experiences, I would be happy bowing out and saying, wow, I got to do this. But it almost becomes a little bit like a adrenaline rush where you kind of want more. You want to be able to say, oh, wow, and now I'm getting asked to go to Japan or Singapore or whatever it is. Um so that's also something as I get farther and farther away from that super scary, uh, you know, terminal diagnosis, um, I've got to get off that little bit of an adrenaline rush of, of trying to accomplish everything so that my uh, obituary goes on to the second page.
0: Mm. Well, it sort of reminds me of, you know, you mentioned writing for yourself. So is the legacy for yourself or is the legacy for others? That's a
1: great question. You know, I, um, so my dad, as I mentioned, um, I, what, what I didn't mention is he escaped from East Germany. And when I was a kid, he was always featured on CNN. He was kind of a local celebrity. And to this day, I mean, he's been he's been gone 12 years. I have people coming and telling me what an impact my dad had on their lives. And, you know, that he was their first boss and he set, he's the reason they have the work ethic they have. And he's the reason that they know how to use a knife and fork correctly because he took time to mentor and coach other people and i do a lot of that too and quite honestly those are the moments that i'm the most proud of so i i feel like and this again might sound like a beauty pageant answer but i feel like the answer is sort of in between you know there's that intrinsic uh, value of if somebody is complimenting the food that i make it's a very short-term um reward but if somebody's complimenting the food of a of a student who I'm teaching how to cook, that's a bigger reward. That's a much longer, like that's a legacy reward. Because even if I'm gone and out of the equation, they're going to remember, well, the guy named Hans taught me that. And, you know, indirectly, my dad taught me that, that I taught them that. So, um, you know, again, it's sort of the short burn versus long burn. The short burn is the pat on the back. The long burn is the fact that someone that I taught is now getting the praise. So.
0: I love that. So is this a good place for us to transition into the interview portion?
1: Oh, we're we not interviewing. <laughs> so, uh, yes, gosh, I feel like um, I feel like I need a nap after that. Uh, no, but listen, I, uh, I, I, before we transition, let me just thank you. That was really um, enlightening for me. Um, made me think about some things that uh, I really never take the time to stop and slow down and either acknowledge or think about or put into that context. So thank you for that. That was, that was very rewarding.
0: Sure, absolutely. So, Hans for tell my audience more about you, your work, <laughs> what you do, what your mission is in life.
1: Well, thank you. I um, so if you were to Google "chef with no stomach," I am the guy that pops up, and I think wow. that's. uh, I I love the fact. So I grew up watching Monty Python and and Benny Hill and all those British uh, comedies. I'm a huge fan of uh, sort of sarcasm and also. Um, you know, just things that the sort of dichotomy of, uh, um, you know, irony too, I guess it falls into that. So the idea of a chef with no stomach, um, it's, it's sort of gallows humor, but it, it really kind of fits my personality. And, um, you know, even like with my kids are like, my stomach hurts. I'm like, show off. I don't even have a stomach, you know? So, um, I am, uh, you know, very aware of that sort of dark humor around that. But I, what I've, what I've done is I've tried to take, Uh, Because I I was sort of at the top of my game. I was on the Next Food Network Star in 2005 and had been asked to do all of these, you know, television cooking things when I was diagnosed with stomach cancer. And, um, you know, long kind of a a detour in my life, obviously focusing on my health. But now that I'm more stable, I really have the superpower now of... um, identifying or acknowledging or recognizing that connection between what we eat and how we feel so you know when you get down to it food is fuel but that kind of takes away some of the romance some of the the kind of nostalgia fun history culture around food and reduces it to its components but if you for all of us if you eat bad you feel bad and that that sounds like i'm oversimplifying but for a guy with no stomach, when I swallow, and not to get too graphic, but food goes essentially into my, straight into my intestines, and that's where all digestion happens. So for a person with a stomach, which is probably most of, most of you, um, there's, there's a little bit of a, a waiting room. Your stomach is kind of like this toxic waiting room, and whatever you eat, it does a pretty good job of making and breaking down what you've eaten into something homogenous that your body can, can utilize. So if you eat heavy, greasy, you know, overprocessed, fatty foods, it might take four or six or eight hours, depending on how fast your your digestion works. But it makes you feel heavy and overprocessed and greasy and fatty and and lethargic and you know sometimes foggy headed. But for for me, if I eat bad, I feel feel bad almost immediately. I mean, there are times if I eat foods that are you know too dense or too fatty or too uh, too greasy, I'll have to lay down because it's hitting my body just like. Uh, it's like putting ink in a, in a glass of clear water, right? It just immediately I feel poorly. So I have basically, rather than focusing on the foods that I quote unquote shouldn't eat, I don't, I don't want to villainize any food. I've, I have to focus on the foods that make me feel great because there is a direct connection between what I eat and how I feel. So when I'm doing a class, that's what I want people to really realize is that every day they get to, you get to decide, how am I gonna feel based on how you fuel this machine? So your body is essentially a machine and you have to figure out, is it a diesel? Is it electric hybrid? Is it, uh, does it use unleaded regular or high test? And then, you know, being very mindful of putting the right fuel into that machine is not necessarily fun at first, but once you kind of identify what fuel works best for you and we're all slightly different, um, it really is a game changer. It gives you so much more energy, so much more focus. Um, the health benefits are, are exponential. Um, rather than just being a passenger on your journey through life, you actually get in the driver's seat. And there's so many things in life we can't control. We can't control the weather. We can't control our genetics. We can't necessarily control our our coworkers' attitude. Um, but the one thing we can absolutely control is what we put in. I've never seen anybody force feed anybody else um, unless it's an infant. Um, so I, I love to, I get excited about food. As you can tell, I, I love sort of preaching the gospel of not necessarily this health food, but the, the mindfulness, uh, of, of controlling what you eat, that you get to decide every day, how you're going to fuel this machine. So, uh, here I wrote a cookbook back in, uh, 2009 called eat like there's no tomorrow. Uh, it sold out. We did all ten thousand copies sold out. I am so far behind in doing uh, another book, and probably because I keep saying yes to everybody else but myself. But we're gonna change that. Um, yes, <laughs> absolutely. Um, so another cookbook. I've got to get that going. But uh, here recently, I have been hosting a podcast, and it's called But I Digest. Um, pun the pun squarely intended. Uh, and I co- I co-host that with my friend Steve McDonough, who was also on the Next Food Network Star. He and his partner Dan. Um, Dan Smith won the next Food Network Star of the year that I was on it, and we've stayed friends all these years, and we have this really kind of fun, uh, nerdy, snarky, uh, sarcastic, but it's a, it's a podcast about food, uh, as the name implies, but I digest, uh, but it also uh, digresses, uh, it's sort of, it, every episode features an, uh, an ingredient or a food and then kind of does the deep dive backstory into the heroes, the history, and all of the hoopla surrounding that food, the culture, the preparation, the um, again, you know, all the weird facts. And and we started the podcast uh, talking about croissants, just as an example, everybody thinks croissants are French. Uh, And today they are sort of quintessentially Parisian, but they are actually from Austria. And there's a huge history about why they're shaped uh, like the crescent moon, which was on the flag of the Turkish empire. And so we love finding those kind of stories and then doing, again, a very sort of uh, factual but comedic dive and uh, journey down the backstory of food. And we have guests and we have uh, trivia and quizzes and all sorts of things, but uh, most important that we have a great time doing it. And so it's, it's a great creative outlet for both of us. Uh, he's written a book called The New Old Bar and he specializes in pre-prohibition era cocktails. So usually in each episode we'll have uh, a recipe as well as a cocktail recipe. And um, again, we have a great time doing it. I'm, um, I, I'm a podcast fan and I had this idea about three years ago and it just kind of sat there and it eventually uh, sprouted and has taken root. And we just recorded our 20th episode. So having a great time with that.
0: Awesome. So what's your favorite food memory and why?
1: Wow. Wow. I have so many of those, and and that's like asking me which is my favorite child. But (laughs) off the top of my head, I uh, so a guy named Hans living in Georgia, right? So my mom is from Georgia, my dad's from Germany. My favorite vegetable is okra. And I know as soon as people hear okra, it's a four-letter word, people think slimy, um, but it doesn't have to be slimy. And my grandmother, so my mother's mother, um, made the best okra. And um, towards the end of her life, she actually lived right next door to us. And um, I was probably, I don't know, 10 years old, maybe 12. And I rode my bike to school. And one morning she asked me before I left the school to help her plant some okra seeds and uh, helped her plant the okra seeds. And by the time I was coming back, she was on the front porch and had a basket full of okra and said they'd already grown, she'd already harvested them. And would I help her, you know, get them ready? And never even dawned on me that she was, you know, pulling my leg because they didn't even have time to sprout, much less produce a whole a whole basket of okra. Um, but just being able to sit on the front porch with her and cap the okra and cut them into bite-sized pieces and shake them in the brown paper bag and do them in the cast iron skillet... Um, I, I love things like that because, you know, food is so much more than how it tastes or how it's prepared. It's who's across the table from you and who's making it with you and the, the history and the story of why we're making it. So um, that I still, to this day, okra makes me think of sitting on the front porch of my grandmother. Uh, that's about as Southern a memory as you can get. Um, but I, I love it for all those reasons.
0: Well, you know, with all the struggle and pain that COVID has brought into our lives. What would you say to a listener burgeoning cook, chef? um, You know, what would you say to them in terms of, you know, this industry?
1: That's a a great question. And, you know, I think um, this is sort of a two prong answer. Number one is uh, not everything is television ready. And I think um, uh, too often young cooks watch this, you know, this beautiful stuff on whether it's online or whether it's on television. They think that that's, you know, that's what I want it to look like. The reality, though, is you have to make those mistakes. You've got to make mistakes. And, you know, you learn more from the meals that end up in the trash can or end up in the in the chicken run. I, I feed, uh, you know, my my pet chickens any of my food scraps. Um, but I've learned more from especially growing up, the times that I burn things, the time that I put too much salt in there, the one time I Um, was reading about Mexican mole and and read that there was chocolate and chilies together. And rather than doing a deep dive and reading more, I just went and bought a Hershey's bar and put a Hershey's bar in my Mexican meal. And it was so terrible that I was literally taking paper towels and scraping my tongue. Um, But man, I've never made that mistake again. And so do not be afraid to make those mistakes because you will learn more from those mistakes than you will from the uh, Instagrammable picture-perfect meals. Um, but the, the quick second answer to that is everybody tries to get out of the kitchen they think how do I spend less time in the kitchen how do I I don't want to chop the onions I don't want to peel the carrots but make that time your time and that is the one time that I kind of kick everybody out of the kitchen I put on a podcast I put on my favorite music and I get into this sort of kitchen you know zen area and peeling a carrot is now not not a chore it's I get to peel a carrot and again maybe it's because i have the contrast of being held captive in a hospital for so long but to be able to sit there and listen to a tune or listening to your voice as we're you know listening to a podcast and peeling a carrot or dicing an onion uh, it's a it becomes a paradigm shift don't think of it as a chore think of it as an opportunity you are laying the foundation for a fantastic meal and and you know yes you're going to take pictures of it and yes you're going to remember it but be mindful of that time it's your time embrace that time in the kitchen and, uh, and make it your own.
0: I just love that. So Hans, where can my audience find out more about you online? Uh,
1: so, um, my website is uh, simply Hans cooks, H A N S C O O K S Hans cooks.com. Um, the podcast is but I digest podcast.com. It's on every podcast player. If you just search for, but I digest, we are the only one with that name at the moment. Hopefully that'll stay that way. Um, and again, if you forget all of that, you can just Google, I heard some podcast with some chef with no stomach, Google chef with no stomach. And uh, that's me. <laughs> there aren't too many of uh, of us uh, stomachless chefs, although I'm proud to say that the diagnosis that I was given 17 years ago is not the death sentence that it once was. And so um, there are a lot of stomachless people out there. You might not recognize them as such, but um, there are a lot of people. People that are able to thrive and survive, and and uh, that are creating memories. So, um, you know, it's one of those things. I didn't know you could survive with a stomach prior to my own diagnosis, um, but I'm proud to say I'm not just surviving; I'm thriving. So
0: wonderful. Well, thanks so much, Hans. I really appreciate it.
1: This has been a load of fun. And uh, send me that invoice for uh, for fixing <laughs> okay. fixing my FOMO. Okay. Sounds good. Thanks, bud.
0: I really hope you enjoyed listening to today's podcast episode of The Human Resolve. If you feel that others may enjoy this episode as well, please share socially at The Human Resolve. You can also visit my website, thehumanresolve.com, where I offer one-on-one coaching sessions, a subscription to my weekly newsletter, where I probe into the secrets from living smarter to feeding your three brains, and my author website, isurvivedcancer.co, Well, you can purchase my number one best-selling book, I Survived Cancer and Here's How I Did It. 35 cancer survivors share their journey and view the book trailer, including excerpts from the book. If you could also help me out and give me a review and rating on this podcast platform, because I do care what you have to say, I would really appreciate it. Now, get out there, my friends, and get busy living.